Be seated, please. The founders of all the world religions are fairly similar. Moses was 120, full of years. He was the unrivaled leader of his people, and he gets to the edge of the promised land, a success, and he dies. Buddha was 80 years old. He dies with his loyal followers surrounding him in peaceful serenity. In the eyes of his followers, he was a complete success. Confucius was 72. Did you know this? He was shunned from his hometown of Lu, and many years after, he was received and actually honored, well-received back to his hometown, where Confucius died in peace and solemnity in a serene environment surrounded by people who were ready and willing to take his message and continue his teaching. Muhammad, Muhammad dies in his 60s after amazingly uniting all of Arabia for the first time in history. And Muhammad dies with followers all over his kingdom willing to do anything for him, and he dies peacefully in the arms of his wife. The founders of the world's major religions are fairly similar, except Jesus. He died when he was around 33. He had a very short public ministry, only about three years. He died on the worst form of punishment known to humanity at the time. He died a disgraceful, in the eyes of people who looked, a shame-filled. He died naked, penniless, and abandoned. Abandoned by his disciples, abandoned by his closest friends, and if you believe the text, he was also abandoned by God. The crucifixion was the worst way possible to die. In fact, Cicero said that the Latin word for cross, crux, was actually in their day a swear word. It was a four-letter word. So the question naturally is this. When you look at the world's religions, it's it's easy to see why many of them are attractive, isn't it? I mean, you see the the teachings of certain people and you watch their life and you see how they were successful and how they died in apparent peace. And so people hear about these various options and they study them and they hear the teachings, they study the teachings, they see the person's life and they say, I will adopt that. And, And they do. But Jesus died naked, penniless, a disgrace. He died inch by inch. He hung on the cross naked for the world to watch him die inch by 
inch. Now, let me ask you a question. It's perhaps the most, one of the most important questions humanity has ever asked. How in the world, given such a diverse and divergent experience of Jesus against all the other world religions, how in the world did that message, the message of the four-letter word, the message of the cross, a swear word, how did that message spread like wildfire in the ancient near world? How did that message spread so much so that it's only Christianity amongst all the world religions that can say that they have to some degree saturated every continent on earth to some degree? And moreover, how can we say shockingly, how can sociologists say that only Christianity has had its center in most of the seven continents of the world. First in the Middle East, then in Europe, then through the missionary journeys to South America, then through North America and the Great Awakening and all that we enjoy and experience as North Americans, and today through Africa. How is that possible? Christianity, my friends, was born out of a very tragic event the death of Jesus Christ. And that event in the eyes of the ancient Near East was odd, it was strange, and they did not understand it. But that message changed the world. And as odd as that message may seem, so also it is just as odd, perhaps, that the Lord Jesus has given us odd but specific commands of ways you are to grow in the Christian life. And they are through the sacraments of the church. Now, we don't often think or study about the sacraments of the church, but I just want you to objectively think about how odd it is to have water poured on your head, to be baptized with water in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, His Father and the Holy Spirit, or to come together as a people by sharing a meal together with bread and with wine. It's crazy. And so this morning, I just want to ask us two very, very simple questions. Why should you take the sacrament seriously? We'll spend most of our time thinking about that. And then, how do you take them seriously? Why should we take the sacrament seriously? Anybody curious about that? Why should we take them seriously? The world looks at us and goes, why do they even, they're missing the waffles on Sunday morning they could have if they stayed home and slept in. Why do they come? Why do you take the sacrament seriously? Let's look, three reasons. Number one, why should we take the sacrament seriously? Reason number one, because Jesus wants us to. Because Jesus wants us to. He's commanded us to do that. And frankly, that should be reason enough. If he is our Lord and he's wise and he impresses upon us to act a certain way, then we should want to joyfully do that. But I know that's not enough for you. It's not often enough for me. And so let's get more specific, shall we? We know that Jesus wants us to be baptized because it is, in fact, indivisible from Jesus' post 
resurrection marching orders to his church. You heard this several weeks ago when Scott preached the, what we call the Great Commission, Matthew 28. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then, what does he say? Teaching them. Jesus says that baptism and teaching are parallel. And you can no more have teaching in the church than you can have baptism. And you can no more have baptism than you can have teaching. They go together. And Jesus says, Baptism is what I want you to do. It is what I want you to enjoy. It is what I want you to practice as my people. And we, we know it's very, very important to Jesus. What about the Lord's Supper? Jesus wants us to take the Lord's Supper seriously because it was the last thing he did and commanded us to do before his death. He gave us the Lord's Supper as a kind of great send-off before the greatest act of love humanity has ever seen or known. And he gave it to help us remember the great defining act of his death for you and for me, for those who believe. Luke twenty-two nineteen says, do this in remembrance. In the Greek, it's in continual remembrance, the present progressive of me. And we know that we must take the Lord's Supper seriously because by it, Jesus transformed the Passover meal. And when he gets to the third cup, as I'll talk about in several weeks, the third cup of the Passover meal, the cup of redemption, he holds it up and he says, this cup is the cup of redemption. And then shockingly, he breaks from the script of Passover meal and he says, in my blood, pour it out for you. When Jesus gave us the, new co- uh, the, the Last Supper, he is giving to us the picture of the new covenant, a new covenant in which Jesus is the new player, in which you are brought into fellowship with him because of what he is doing as the Messiah for his people. And Jesus wants us to be serious about it, which is, which is why Paul goes to great length in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 about very specific ways that he wants us to do it. So the Lord's Supper and baptism are commanded by Jesus, and they are not some sort of extracurricular, they're not some sort of elective in the curriculum of your growth with Jesus. We think of them like, well, what I really need to do is just believe And then, well, if I go to church, great. That's kind of, that's a great elective. I can do it. And that's not what Scripture teaches, friends. There is no ordinary salvation for us outside of the church. Oh, yes, the thief on the cross was saved. I tell you, if Jesus looks you in the eye before you die and says you'll be with me in heaven and paradise, you'll be there. But don't use him as the rule. He is the exception. And Jesus expects you, wants you, desires you, to be with and in his people because you cannot grow in the Christian life by yourself. Reason number one that we take the sacrament seriously is because Jesus commanded us to do so. And they're central. Reason number two, we are to take the sacraments seriously because they are a vivid and sensory a vivid description and a sensory experience 
of the gospel that safely puts us back in touch with very deep realities. I'll say it again. I know that's wordy. But they are vivid descriptions and a sensory experience of the gospel that safely puts us back in touch with the deepest realities. There's an old, old document written in the 17th century that that you heard earlier. It's called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It was written at a time when England had a Trump parliament, and they were trying to unify what all the Protestants in England believed. You're trying to unify what is it that we believe. They didn't have a king at the time. And so parliament got together, and they commissioned ministers of the gospel to say, help us as a country know what we believe. And so they all gathered together, Presbyterians and congregational uh, uh, ministers, most of them, and they wrote a catechism in question 92. It's an old, old document. Sounds kind of funny, but they ask, what is a sacrament? And the answer is, a sacrament is a holy ordinance. That is, it's a special ritual set aside by God, instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible or sensory signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented. They're pictures for us, but there's more to it sealed, and still more to it. They are, in fact, applied to believers. In other words, they are objective signs pointing us subjectively to what is true. Let's think about baptism for a second. By virtue of the water coming down our heads, which is the normal mode we practice in the Reformed Church, by virtue of the water coming down, that picture makes vivid our tangible union with Christ through the Spirit who has been poured out upon us. And that union is one of the most important principles, one of the most important phrases of the whole of the Bible. The precious doctrine of our union with Christ is shot through Scripture every time You see the words in Christ or with Christ, and I encourage you one day to do a study of your Bibles, of wherever you see the word in Christ or with Christ. There it's talking about this doctrine of our union with Christ. And what does that union mean? It means that when Jesus died on the cross, he represented us. It was a representative union. And that by virtue of Jesus' death on the cross, we also died with him so that we don't have to pay for our sin anymore. Why? Because Jesus took our punishment and we died with him on the cross. He is our representative. It's called representative union. Jesus is our representative. But also, he rose again to new life. And so also we are given Jesus' own righteousness so that when the Father looks at you, he no longer sees sinful old Blake, broken needy, insecure Blake. He sees the righteousness of his son. And that's called our vital union with Christ. You have our representative union and our vital union. And so we're, we want to live out that identity. We want more and more to look and act and do what Jesus calls us to do and be the people that Jesus calls us to be. And baptism is a picture of that union. And it's a picture of that union because baptism is what? It is entrance into Christ's covenant people. 
We are united with Christ in the covenant promises as his people. And so baptism is a mark upon us that we are marked off as his people. Anybody go to the Union uh, Wassail game last, uh, this weekend? Yeah, I see several hands. It's a big game. It's a big deal. It's pretty heartbreaking, frankly. But you know, if you leave the stadium at Union, do you know what they do to you? There's a lady at the gate or a man at the gate who stamps your hand. And that stamp is a mark that tells you that you belong back in that stadium. And so also, baptism is for us. It is a mark that we belong with God's people. We belong in the gates of God's people. And that we raise our children at the stadium to cheer on the Rams. Since they're very, very little, we raise them up. And we say, you're expected if you're on this side of the stadium to cheer for the Rams. And of course, you know, there may in rare cases be exceptions to that. I mean, there's going to be people who just are, go to the game to watch it because they want to watch a fantastic football game. And, but rarely can you go to a game and not cheer on the team. And so also in the church, it is a rare exception. Being baptized into his covenant family, even as a child, as I'll talk about here in a couple of weeks, why we practice infant baptism. Even as a child, you are raised up to be part of the Ram family, as it were, for those who were in the stadium on Friday night, even at a very young age. For us to be part of the church, to say that the Rams are not just my older brother's people, they're my people. I cheer them on. And one day, when those children believe by faith in those covenant promises, they too become, in the very fullest sense, Rams. Baptism is a picture of our entrance into God's covenant community. And therefore, it is for those who place their faith in Christ and for their children. We are united to Christ in his death. That's another reason why baptism is such a beautiful picture of, of our union with Christ. It, it mysteriously but very truly, when Jesus died, he paid our debt fully. And we are united with him in his death. It's a picture of our being united with him, Romans chapter 6. And more than that, we are united with Christ in his resurrection in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead for the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So baptism is a picture of our union with Christ. It is to be taken seriously. It is a vivid description. It is a sensory experience of our union with Christ. Even when our feelings may not be there, it is objectively true. Are you with me? What about the Lord's Supper? By virtue of the cup and the broken bread, both of them are imbibed. How? They're taken in by eating them. By virtue of eating the bread, by swallowing it, by savoring it, we are taken into our bodies. We are, in a sense, representing Christ in our union with him in at least two ways. Number one, that his life was given as a sacrifice to atone for our sins in the bread. And two, the life that is given to us again by the Holy Spirit, 
making us new. As we come and partake of these elements week by week by week by week. Now, let me say very clearly, for those of you who may have grown up in a denomination or a church that believed that you were made more holy by the sacraments or that you were made somehow special unto God through the sacraments, we do not believe the sacraments are magic. We do not believe that by the sacraments, somehow you yourself are becoming more presentable to God. We believe that by the sacraments, Jesus is objectively presented to us, despite, despite what your subjective sensory experience may pick up. But he gave it to you to be tasted and eaten, to multiply the ways in which he interacts with you so that you might remember again your vital union with Christ. And so we come to the table celebrating that Jesus wants us he wants us to come to him. Do you remember when, when uh, Amanda read earlier in the service, she read the famous passage in Jeremiah 31 about the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And that picture is a promise of what we will be someday in the new Jerusalem. But we get a taste of it now. And notice what Jesus says, or what the Lord says. He says that he will forget. Now, we forget our sin all the time. I forget my sin all the time. That's why we have a confession of sin. I need to remember it. But it says that God, he will forget our sin. He will remember our iniquities no more. He won't even remember them. And he says even more than that. He says that I am your husband. What does that mean? He says, I long for my church so much so that I forget my sin, forget their sin. And I long for them the way that a husband longs for his bride. There's this interesting point in The Hobbit, one of my favorite parts of The Hobbit, at least in the movie because of the way they put the music together where uh, the dwarves, when they're at Bag End and still in Bilbo's house, sing the song of the Misty Mountain. Have you seen that part of the song, uh, that part of the movie? Mm-hmm. Now, you remember it, right? That was right on key. They sing this beautiful song, and what is it? It's a song that says, Far over the misty mountain cold to the dungeons deep and caverns old. We must away ere break of day to seek the pale enchanted gold. They hearken back to their identity as dwarves. They sing together this amazing ritual right in the midst of the beginning of the story where they think back, even though they were not subjectively aware of it, when Thorn of Oakenshield begins to sing that song, they are all transported into this amazing baritone harmony of the misty mountain. And that is a picture of what it's like to come to the Lord's table. Mm-hmm. We're all brought back. And you're reminded of objective realities for what is true of you that subjectively you may not even feel or care because you're just so tired because you had banned all day yesterday. It's true. And in one billion years, in one billion years, we will sing that song together in the presence of the Lamb, just like He's here with us in the Lord's table. 
We will sing with him. It is a vivid description of a sensory experience of his covenant promises to us that speak of the deepest realities of your life. Jesus commands us to do it. And so third, what's the third reason that we should take the sacrament seriously? The third reason is because by taking the sacraments, we discover and experience the presence of Christ himself. We don't just understand doctrine to grow in the Christian life. Though we want to be thoughtful, we want to understand Scripture well. But by taking the sacraments, we are experiencing His very presence. Jesus' blood is not that wine physically. Jesus' body is not that bread physically. But spiritually, He is here with His people. And He intends by you taking the bread and the wine to change you, to change you, dare I say, the very same way he hung on that cross. Jesus didn't die immediately, did he? No, he hung on that cross and he died penniless and naked and from the eyes of the Roman world, a disgrace. But he died inch by inch. And isn't it interesting, that's also how the Lord intends for us to grow in Him. Now, for some of us, John Owen gives this analogy where he says, when you first become a Christian, John Owen is an old Puritan that lived in England many, many years ago. During the time, he was the chaplain, in fact, to the parliament that wrote the Westminster Confession. Sometimes when you become a Christian, your life is like a densely wooded forest. And when you place your faith and trust in Christ, sometimes there's a great swaths of that acreage that are cleared away. But for most of us, there's just a little sliver that's cleared away. And we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, then go to work to clear the rest of the woods. And sometimes we pick up little weeds, a little hen bit, a dandelion here and there, and that's growth. We fight against our sin. And there are some of us if you're like me, that have sins that you struggled with since you were a child, that you still struggle with. And Owen says, to those you should fell, try to fell the tree. You use an axe and you hit that axe and you chop the tree and you go at it as hard and as intense as you can. But don't go after those trees for too long or you'll get overwhelmed and you'll become despondent. Because you can't cause those trees to fall all at once. You chop them bit by bit, by bit. Why do we take the Lord's Supper every week at Trinity? It's not because it's magic. It's because by the power of the Holy Spirit, we as a people are gathering together under His Word to have our axes sharpened by the Word of God. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit to wield that axe and to chop at the idols of our heart. Chop by chop by chop, so that one day, someday, when that deep struggle, man, that you have with pornography, or with your pride, or with control, the ways that you use your language in passive-aggressive ways to manipulate, one of these days, the light is going to break through, and that tree is going to fall. And the way that it falls is not because of just one experience. Usually, 
It's because over time, chop, chop, chop. And so we come to the table week by week to remind you of that deep reality. We were doing an interview just earlier for, um, for a child who was going to uh, come to the table, and uh, Jason used a great analogy. He said it's often like when you become a Christian, you hear that you get this white robe, like you've got all this mud all over your robe, and you're given this white robe like your sins are forgiven. But what's the problem with that? The problem is that you're still in the pigsty, and you can't keep your white robe clean. It's filthy. And our robes consistently get filthy by our sin. And the Lord's table, it is like when you come to the Lord's table and you take the bread and the cup from the elders of your church, it's like your Savior is draping over you his righteous white robe again. He's taken off of your shoulders the mud-crusted, filthy, heavy robe that you've been wearing, and he puts on the light, clean, white robe of his righteousness. And he reminds you of that objective reality, even when you don't feel it. That's good news. So we should take the sacrament seriously because Jesus commands us to do so, and that should be enough. But we also take the sacraments seriously because they are vivid descriptions and sensory experiences of his covenant promises to his people, the deepest realities of our life. And thirdly, we take the Lord's Supper because by them we discover and experience the presence of Christ himself. So let me conclude very quickly. How do we take the Lord's Supper? There really is a very simple answer to that question. By faith. And I know faith is a 50-cent word thrown around the church, so I need to be a bit more specific. We take the sacraments seriously when we take them by faith. And what I mean is not some gimmick. They're not magic. As we read earlier together, Westminster Shorter Catechism 91 says, the sacraments become effectual means of salvation not from any virtue in them or in him, in me as the minister that doth administer them, but only by the blessing of Christ and the working of his Holy Spirit in them that by faith receive them. So if you have been accepted or received at the Lord's table, you cannot come to the table thoughtlessly. Children, you cannot come to the table just because you want to come. You come seeing that you need Jesus. And parents, you can't come to the table thoughtlessly. You come seeing your need for Jesus by faith. And parents, if you have young children who have just been received to the table, please help me to help my children. I'll help you to help your children to come to the table by faith, assessing their hearts and saying that even though you don't feel it, you may be hungry for lunch. Even though you may not feel it because you're tired because it was the battle of the bands all day yesterday and we had a game Friday night. Even though you don't feel it, it is the objective reality that Christ is your Savior and that you don't have to pay for your sins anymore because he paid all of it for you. There's no more penalty to pay despite what you think through your guilt. Jesus has done it all for you. And so run. Come. It's a celebration of Christ's love for you. And friends, when you come to the table, like, on the one hand, don't come thoughtlessly. 
But on the other hand, don't desperately try to make yourself worthy of the table. Like, don't say, okay, I need to, I need to come because Jesus commanded me to. I need to come because it's a vivid description. I can't even remember what the second point was. I need to come. Like, you, don't, you won't remember 30% of what I said. It's okay. Keep coming. Bit by bit by bit, the Holy Spirit changes us. Don't work yourself up to be worthy of the table. You will never come. Jesus is here and intends to change you. People, we believe in a very odd Savior who didn't die in the peaceful arms of his wife for he was not married. He didn't die with his followers surrounding him because he was alienated. It was tragic. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. And he invites us to take seriously the sacrament that he has given us, the Lord's Supper and baptism, as odd as they may look and feel today, to remind us of the deepest realities of our heart. And by faith, to commune with us and bit by bit by bit to make us more like him. Isn't that good news? Let's pray together.